Mr. Humphrey. Mr. Speaker, question number one. Call the Minister. Thank you for your question. Um, the Shankill Gateway Public Realm Scheme received full planning permission in July 2020. However, Belfast City Council has since raised a number of considerations around the omission of a redesign of the Peters Hill North Street Junction from the planning approval. My department has engaged with the Department for Infrastructure and Belfast City Council through a joint junctions working group to review Peters Hill North Street Junction and develop designs to improve this connection to the city centre. When final designs are agreed and a revised planning approval obtained, if necessary, my department will consider the budget position against other priorities. Mr. Humphrey, supplementary. Thank you very much, Mr. Um, Speaker, and thank the Minister for her answer. Uh, can I ask the Minister to expedite those conversations with the Department of Infrastructure and Belfast City Council to ensure this, this development, which has been talked about for some time, uh, is actually <coughs> put in place as soon as possible? And also, can I ask the Minister for an update on the development of the junction between Lanark Way and Shankill Road, which would include St Matthew's Church, the shops, Glenwood Primary School and West Belfast Orange Hall, which was due to start some months ago, hasn't, and was due to start this week, and doesn't appear to have started. Thanks very much. Well, the conversations with the Department of Infrastructure and Belfast City Council are ongoing and moving as quickly as possible. Obviously, Belfast City Council have developed their bolder vision for Belfast, um, and part of that vision is about overcoming severance with surrounding communities. Um, you know yourself, the, the Belfast City Centre is surrounded by inner city working class communities. Um, and it was um, there's other work ongoing in terms of that whole shatter zone that runs along Peters Hill, um, I suppose from Carrick Hill, the new lodge right through um, to the bottom of Divis Street. And therefore they're taking an overarching look of the essential road work that needs to be done. And obviously the Department of Infrastructure is a key part of that in terms of what measures they're going to be moving forward. We are trying to move at pace and I'll update members um, as soon as that work has been completed. So there is a commitment that there should be no undue delay um, around this programme. It will move with other key strategic sites along that shatter zone in terms of trying to move those sites forward as soon as possible for development. In terms of the other scheme you talk about, I don't have at hand um, the information on that, so I can follow up just with um, a written response to you in terms of when that scheme is uh, going to start. Thank the Minister for her response to William Humphreys. She mentioned that the Peters Hill North Street Junction is intentionally or originally included in the scheme. Um, could she also, um, even in writing, uh, make sure, or if she can, uh, talk to our colleagues in infrastructure in Belfast City Council regarding where that fits in with the shatter zone that you referred to and indeed the strategic set assessment that Belfast City Council and her department are involved in. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks very much. Um, all of those strands of work are important strands of work in terms of Belfast City Council's bolder vision for Belfast. I do give a commitment um, in working with the Department of Infrastructure and also Belfast City Council that we're taking a really strategic longer-term view of this entire space in terms of the shatter zone, the undeveloped sites um, that sit there and indeed the roadway and public realm works that need to be done. I know Belfast City Council's vision is to overcome severance with surrounding communities and it's been a long-standing issue indeed when those communities were consulted. It's one of the issues of feeling to be locked out of the city centre is one of the key issues that they have raised. And obviously, I want to give a commitment to remove that severance and to restitch those communities back into the city centre and the city streetscape. 
um, and obviously public realm roads infrastructure is a key part of that. So there is a commitment from me to take that work forward once those conversations with Council and DFI are concluded. Um, I'll update members accordingly. And they call Andy Allen. Minister, it's clearly evident in your draft budget that your, your department is under severe pressure in terms of your wider budget. With that in mind, Minister, is there any proposed schemes in the forthcoming financial year that may be under threat? Well, the draft budget is that at the moment. Um, it is in draft. Obviously, there are concerns that have been highlighted through the equality impact assessment, more so to do with the revenue side of the budget than the capital. Um, I'm assessing those at the moment and obviously taking into account the consultation um, that is out at the moment pertaining to the draft budget. And then I will come forward um, with what my budget will look like, what I'm prioritising in the time ahead, and I'll be able to update members um, in more particulars around the capital and the revenue once we get to that point. Nicole Stewart Dixon. Number two. Thanks very much for your question. Statutory sick pay is an important tool in helping people to adhere to the current advice to stay at home um, if they have symptoms of COVID-19 or have been advised to self-isolate. However, um, as I am sure you will appreciate, these guidelines are easier to comply with if you know that your income is enough to support your family. I recognise that anyone moving from a salary to the current rate of statutory sick pay faces a, sub a substantial drop in income and financial uncertainty. Increasing the rate of statutory sick pay could go some way to encouraging people to fully comply with the requirement to remain at home and to protect the health service. In March of last year, I wrote to Theresa Kofi, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, to request an urgent consideration be given to increasing the rate of statutory sick pay and to ensure that individuals are properly financed and supported during the pandemic. This will ensure um, that those who are self-isolating and do not continue working, thereby potentially endangering their health and the health of others, um, further spreading the virus. Unfortunately, I only recently received a reply from Justin Tomlinson, MP, Minister for Disabled Work and Health, and I plan to meet with him in the coming weeks to request an urgent consideration in giving an increase to the statutory sick pay. I should also highlight that I responded quickly to provide financial support to those who have had to self-isolate by including an additional support through the discretionary support COVID-19 self-isolation grant. This payment is designed to assist uh, with short-term living expenses where a person or a member of their immediate family have been infected by COVID-19 or have been advised to self-isolate in accordance with the latest guidance from the Public Health Agency. And I suppose just to add, once I have that meeting with uh, Justin Tomlinson, I'll update members as soon as possible. Stuart Dixon, supplementary. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Speaker, and thank you, Minister, for a very comprehensive and detailed answer. Minister, can you tell the House what actions, if any, you're taking with the Minister for the Economy to uh, further uh, the um, advance statutory sick pay payments in Northern Ireland, not only during COVID, but also beyond coming out of the COVID pandemic, how we can improve uh, statutory sick pay for everybody in Northern Ireland who finds themselves in those circumstances? 
Yeah, well, obviously discussions are ongoing. I have a meeting due soon, um, a request in with the Minister of the Economy to look at this issue and a number of other issues uh, where both departments need to be working together in terms of looking at the issue of statutory sick pay, but also looking at uh, labour market interventions um, being another example. So I'll be able to update members once we progress those discussions. I think this issue obviously needs to be looked at. This pandemic has really highlighted uh, the fundamentals and the faults within the system currently, and we need to find ways of addressing that to ensure that people aren't having to choose um, going to work over their health because they don't have the finances to sustain them. I did, as I say, introduce new measures within the existing legislation constraints that I have around discretionary support. And again, I'm keeping all of that um, under review as well to see how we can improve those systems also. So I'll update the member in due course. Nicole Carl Mullen. Minister, I know that you have been determined since the start of this pandemic, along with uh, Carol Nicolin, to do whatever um, it takes to support those most impacted by COVID. In addition to the statutory sick pay, you touched on it there. What other changes have you made to ensure that this support is delivered, or that this support is delivered to those who need it? Yeah, well, overall, I mean, the department has stepped up. Obviously, our staff within the department has really stepped up throughout the height of this pandemic. Um, and I suppose I have to take the opportunity to commend the staff within the Department of Communities who really do want to get support out the door and onto the ground as soon as possible. We have invested over £304 million in support over the last year, right into the heart of communities and neighbourhoods. We have increased the income threshold for discretionary support, and that was one of the first measures that were introduced last year, an introduction of the self-isolation grant. Um, was introduced as well. We also broadened that um, in terms of it being a grant and also the awareness um, of people able to draw down on that grant. We introduced food supports in terms of the immediate aftermath of the COVID pandemic uh, when people were being instructed to stay at home. And obviously there's been a variety of other supports from council funding to go in and assist council with services and loss of income. Heating payments, um, which you'll see that over £42 million um, has been invested in an additional COVID heating payment, and that's to over 220,000 um, individuals. Um, and that was in groups who were seen as high risk. Again, I continue to review all of the measures um, that we're trying to implement, discretionary support, which is unique to here in the North, um, and to see how we can make those schemes that are there more flexible to ensure that it reaches as many people as possible. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the Minister for, for her answers up until this point. Um, the Minister, I'm sure, will more than appreciate that uh, for people trying to eke by on £95.85 per week statutory sick pay, and they, in difficult circumstances themselves, both health-wise and, and family-wise, that um, the discretionary support mechanism is elongated, it's lengthy, it's difficult to get through on. Um, has the Minister given any consideration to a particular SSP top-up scheme, especially tailored to the needs here in Northern Ireland, to obviate all that? Uh, because you will appreciate, too, Minister, that in these circumstances where people are off work, who have tested positive, they're least able to go through an elongated, either computerised or te telephony mechanism for making an application for discretionary support. 
Yeah, I thank the member for your question. And I suppose in the midst of the pandemic, again, as I say, it threw open a lot of issues in terms of how the system functions, changes that need to be made. There was quickly changes made to the discretionary support to try and make it more flexible for people. The application form was shortened. Um, we did put it online to ensure then that people could access it that way too. Um, there's continuous to be improvement in it, and obviously I'm going to be conducting a review of discretionary support, which is bounded by legislation. That may mean a legislative uh, change in the time ahead, but I am keen to ensure that the existing mechanisms that are there, can we make them more flexible to ensure that people who need them can get them as quickly as possible? I'm obviously keen, that's why I've written to the Department of Work and Pensions in terms of statutory sick pay overall. There are changes that need to be made. There are financial implications then in terms of any uplift in uh, statutory sick pay. And obviously um, that has to be forthcoming, I believe, from the Department of Work and Pensions because there's a knock-on effect then to employers and the contributions that they will have to make. So again, we have to look at this all in the round. The important thing for me is trying to get support to people who need it as quickly as possible. That meeting is due to take place in the next couple of weeks with DWP. I will be putting this strongly to them, but I'm also um, committed to reassessing measures that I already have in place within the department to ensure that we make it as easy as possible for people in a time of crisis that they can access that support as quickly as possible. Part of that review will be talking to people directly who have been through the process um, and can we make changes there then, as you say, in terms of the application itself? Um, can that be more streamlined? Are there quicker ways? Are there extra supports that we can build in to ensure that we get all the information that we need, but that they can get the support that they need as well as soon as possible? So again, as I'm working through this review, um, the meeting with DWP, I'll update members uh, to the conclusion of those. Nicole, Jerry, Carl. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Minister, for your answers. Uh, Minister, given the fact that only 2% of people who have received the discretionary isolation grant have been able to get the £500 or more figure, as part of the review, will the Minister look at implementing an automatic payment of £500 at least for people uh, so they can uh, isolate safely, especially those who are uh, low earners? Well, I think one of the big things, just to compare the payment with what's happening in England, it's not a straight scheme across the water, which I'm sure you'll appreciate in that it can be taxed in terms of um, how that scheme is being implemented. I want to build as much flexibility into the discretionary support as I can to make sure that the um, assistance that people need, that they are getting it. So whilst it's not a one-off £500 payment, the discretionary support here is a grant. It's not a loan. You can apply more than once. And I think that's the important thing, that you can apply multiple times if you are or a member of your household is isolating as a result of COVID. If there are other flexibilities that I can build into the scheme, that's going to be part of the review that I'm doing into discretionary support. This isn't about stopping people trying to access help. I want to make sure that I can open up um, the help that I can give to people in a, in a manner as quickly as possible and to make the process as easy as possible for people to go through. That's why it will be important as part of that review that I engage with those uh, professionals that have an expertise in this, but also that I engage with those who have been through the system who maybe had a negative experience of discretionary support and to learn from that experience on how we can improve the customer service, but also how we can streamline the service to ensure that it's meeting the need. Um, and then we will look at all of that. I mean, as I say, I've increased the income threshold, and that was about trying to get as many low-income families um, into it again. And all of that will be part of the review going forward as well. 
Nicole McNesbitt. Question three, Mr. Speaker. Thank you for your question. My department acted swiftly to put in place a range of programmes and schemes to support both individuals and organisations from the impact of the COVID pandemic. To support individuals, a fund of three million was made available for discretionary support self-isolation grant, and as of the 31st of December last year, 19,975 claims have been processed, of which 3,883 were unsuccessful. For sporting organisations, a fund of £27 million was made available through three schemes. For two schemes, a total of 2,808 applications were received, of which 526 were unsuccessful. The third scheme is still being processed at the moment, so we do not have those figures yet. For charitable organisations, funding of £20.5 million was made available through the Charitable Grant Scheme. In Phase 1, 1,646 applications were received and 129 were unsuccessful. Social enterprise support was also provided through funding of £9.25 million, with 394 applications, 79 were unsuccessful. Information is not yet available for the other schemes which my department has put in place, such as the Community Voluntary and Social Enterprise Sector, PPE Scheme, Culture Resilience Scheme, as they are still being processed and applications are being given out at the moment. And again, I am happy to share that information once it is available. I thank the Minister for that detail. I, I think if you are designing a, a COVID mitigation scheme based on qualifying criteria, it is probably inevitable that individuals and groups will fall through the cracks. So I wonder if the Minister would agree with me that it would make sense to form a subcommittee of the Executive as a sort of appeals body populated by herself and maybe the Ministers for Finance uh, and the Economy, and that this would represent a better safety net for those who do miss out. I suppose in terms of the, the schemes and discretionary support, for example, I mean over 80 per cent of the applications have been successful. Obviously, for that just on over 20 per cent, we still need to be doing work. Um, I'm keen to engage across the executive where I can in terms of looking at additional supports, learning from things that maybe haven't worked in the past. That's why I've instructed a review of discretionary support. I want that to be in some ways independent as well, and I'm involving people from outside the system to be involved in that review also to ensure that there is that level of independence, there's that level of scrutiny and accountability. But importantly, in keeping with the co-design, which I give a commitment to in terms of co-design and policy going forward and embedding a rights-based approach, I want to involve um, those on the ground, those who have been impacted by the supports, either in a positive way or a negative way, to ensure then that we are meeting their needs going forward. Um, that's why I'm going to be doing this. In terms of an overarching group, I mean, I haven't looked at it in terms of the suggestion you make, um, and certainly I do have ongoing engagements with ministers um, on certain schemes across the executive. We're obviously looking at the pathway to recovery in terms of that not just being an economic recovery but a social recovery. Um, so again, we will be continuing those discussions, which will be cross-departmental across the executive in terms of learning from the impact of this pandemic, the impact that it really had on poverty, and it's exacerbated the problems that are already there. And we do need to work in a more collaborative, joined-up way in terms of the solutions, and that's something that I'm committed to doing in the time ahead. Call Paula Bradley. 
Speaker, and can I thank the Minister for her answers thus far? And I want to caveat my question with in our constituency offices, we know we hear about the negative more than the positive. Um, so I want to talk about the, the COVID-19 discretionary support. And just, Minister, what would you say to those people that have been turned down, that were quite literally told to go to their cupboards, count how many tins they had in their cupboards or what they had in their fridges? And when we know that people's needs are not black and white. So when we look at the review, could you give your, your, your word that you'll look at this at a common sense approach, um, because not everybody's uh, situation is the same? Yeah, no, thanks very much. I mean, as I pointed out, obviously the majority of those who have applied, over 15,000 have been successful in the scheme. That said, I need to be looking at those who haven't been successful um, and who are still in plight in terms of the situation through no fault of their own that they find themselves in. I think it is important as part of the review that we reach out to those individuals, not just talk to those who have had a good experience of, this, of the system, but also those who have had a negative experience as well. Um, I think there is an issue. I mean, on the one hand, we really do have a team of dedicated staff who live in the communities in which they are providing this service. And I have seen, particularly throughout this pandemic, them really stretching themselves to go above and beyond. You know, we did change stuff immediately at the outbreak of the pandemic to make it more flexible. We increased the income threshold. Uh, we done the online form. We shortened the form to try and make it easy as possible. That said, there are still things that can be done. Um, there are systems that can be improved. There are customer services that can always be improved. Um, and I do feel that there is a commitment, not just from me as Minister in terms of this review, but also from the Department and from the officials themselves. They see the value in this review being conducted. They see the value in an independent look at that as well from sectors outside, and importantly from those who have come through the system and those negative experiences to work out is there a, you know, a common thread in that? Is there a common issue that needs to be dealt with? And I am open to ensuring that this is an open and transparent review um, and that we actually make it better for those people. The big thing is around instilling dignity, a rights-based approach into the system. Um, and if we are serious about that, then we need to listen to those people who have had a negative experience and reshape the system to respond to their needs. I am committed to doing that. I know the staff within the department are committed to doing that, and indeed I will update members as we start to work through that review of discretionary support. Minister, thank you for your answers thus far, and I know you have reiterated um, your commitment today to, to getting help um, and support to, to those people who are in need. And in light of that, could you outline what you are doing in order to increase the uptake of the discretionary support? Yeah, I suppose there's been um, a lot of work, and I mean, one of the common things is people not knowing where to get access to help. There's maybe a plethora of different systems in terms of help. I suppose the first thing we have worked with the public health agency and included a link in the NI Direct Coronavirus um, and Benefits web page in terms of the financial support and practical help. I've also worked successfully through the department with the Department of Health to include information on this grant as part of the Stop the COVID app. We obviously have a good working relationship with the advice sector and the independent advice sector, and indeed information on this grant is available through um, those organisations as well, and indeed through our jobs and benefits through the staff within the department as well in terms of updating and informing members. I think in terms of the discretionary support, I mean this is going to be a fundamental part of the review as well, around how people knew about the service, how they could access the service, were there blockages in terms of information, was it clear? I mean, I know when I read some websites, 
you get confused in terms of trying to find them. So I want to make it as easy as possible um, for people to find the support. And particularly, I mean, these are people in a distressed state. They have lost income. They're wondering how they're going to have food on the table or heat their homes. And we do need to make it as easy and as accessible as possible. So as part of this review, I am given a commitment to look at that issue. Um, we do need to be shouting about these supports um, and trying to find other ways. We do have a good network of community and voluntary organisations that have really stood up um, throughout this pandemic in getting critical food support and other supports out to communities. So we do need to find new ways of reaching out to people, of engaging them. And my department is open for looking at any suggestions or ways that we can increase, um, I suppose, awareness around the supports that are there. I call Rachel Wood. Mr Speaker, and thank the Minister for her answer so far. She should be aware that many have fallen through the net for support from many schemes um, issued by the Executive, um, not least the sports and social clubs that have got a hospitality element. And they have been pointed to the Sports Sustainability Fund, which is administered by your department, but it closed on the 20th of January. So is the Minister minded to reopen this and look at the eligibility criteria with the Minister of Finance? Well, I think firstly those applications are being processed at the moment. That did close on the 19th of January. It was clear within that process that assistance could be given to sports organisations who are impacted that if they are, for example, operating a bar facility, if there's a reduction in that and it's impacting on their sports side that they can apply through that fund. I know from the assessments a lot of clubs have applied through the sports fund for lost income uh, through their enterprises and indeed those costs in some ways will be met through that grant. Um, so there are ongoing discussions. I haven't um, had a big, um, I suppose, lobbying from organisations. I mean, I, what I have got up until now is a lot of the sports organisations have applied to the grant. We're going to be making announcements, obviously, on that fund shortly um, because assessments are concluding. Um, a lot of the costs then that they have applied for, um, if they can show that there's a, a direct impact on the sport um, that they're doing, then that that will be looked at as part of this fund. I suppose the fund has been maxed out in terms of the money that I have at the moment. If we do see that there's an additional need, or that a new need emerges, then that has to be taken into consideration in terms of new COVID support going into the next financial year. So I'm keen to engage, obviously, with the sporting codes, with individual sporting bodies, um, with the sports forum and also Sport NI, to look to see if there are any gaps in the existing fund and what we can do um, to provide new or additional supports going forward. All of that, obviously, will be dependent on budget. But again, I am committed to looking to see what I can do to close any gaps that may exist. We haven't been made overly aware at the moment of any. We haven't had a demand, but that may come, obviously, as the applications and the notifications around funding is released in the coming week or so. Nicole Allen Chambers. Speaker, question four. Thank you for um, your question, Member. Just advancement of the plans to complete the regional stadia programme, including Caseman Park, is a commitment in New Decade New Approach Agreement, and I am fully committed to delivering on this priority area. I welcome the announcement from my colleague, the Minister for Infrastructure, in October 2020 of her intention to improve the Caseman Park planning application, and have recently written asking for an update on this. There continues to be significant engagement with the GAA in relation to the development of the Caseman Park project. The Regional Stadia Programme Board, chaired by the SRO, meets monthly. 
representatives from the Ulster Council GAA attend in respect of the Casement Park project. Members of the Stadia team also attend regular meetings of the GAA project board. My department officials meet with the Ulster Council GAA weekly to ensure that this project is being delivered at pace. This is in addition to the many project-related meetings both teams attend with relevant project consultants and advisors in attendance. I also have regular meetings with the GAA Caseman Park team and members of their project board to assess the progress and to discuss current issues pertaining to the project. Supplementary, Alan Chambers. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you, Minister, for your update. Um, Minister, can you confirm that uh, there is a, a degree of, of a funding standoff between your department and the GAA uh, in relation to the uh, delivery of this project? And will those funding difficulties uh, in any way uh, put this project in danger? Um, I don't see a standoff in terms of at the moment. I'm not sure if that's um, what you mean in terms of your question, but there has been good discussions and engagements with the GAA in terms of the development. I think there is a commitment from both myself and them that we need to see the final regional stadia being developed. We obviously have King Span and Windsor already up and running, notwithstanding the COVID restrictions, but we have seen the benefits of those two stadia, and I think it's right that we complete the third and final stadia. Um, in terms of young gales and Gaelic games that are coming up and in terms of that wider community impact. As I say, we are waiting the outcome of the plan and we need the green certificate in order to progress with the um, full business case being finalised. In terms of that, then, obviously, there has to be a discussion and a negotiation around the cost. I was a committee last week um, and said, and I know uh, Minister Nicollin, who was in place of me when I was off, that there has been already um, public comment that with an increase in cost, then that has to be um, shared out. It has to be looked at in terms of uh, both the executive, but also the GAA making additional contributions. But all of that will be finalised in the full business case once the plan and certificate has been given. And then those negotiations will steep up and at a greater pace over the coming months once we have that certificate in place, which I'm hopeful should be in the coming weeks. I call Chris Little. Mr. Speaker, can I ask the Minister when she will release the sub-regional stadia funding and seek her assurance that this long overdue and desperately needed funding will be allocated to clubs like Glen Torn and my own constituency of East Belfast before the end of this mandate? Yeah, no, thanks very much for your question. And I suppose I mean, I was a committee last week talking about both regional and sub-regional stadia. They're both commitments, a new decade, new approach. I am committed to having this programme up and running before the end of this election mandate and before the end of um, before the elections next year. I did think that it was prudent that there was a reassessment looking at the commitments and the need um, for the sub-regional stadia because the initial plan is over ten years outdated. There was another consultation in twenty sixteen. A lot has changed between now and then, notwithstanding the impact of COVID as well. So there has been a wide range of engagement uh, with uh, football clubs and associations with the IFA and others. We're in the middle of concluding on those and in terms of recommendations coming to me as Minister. And then I will outline my plans um, in the time ahead around how the sub-regional stadia will be ruled out. That ends the period for a list of questions. Um, we will now move to topical. 15 minutes of topical questions, and I call Alan Chambers. 
Speaker. Um, Minister, um, what steps have you taken to ensure that those health care workers who have received the £500 acknowledgement and those health care students who have received a £2,000 acknowledgement from the Health Minister will not see it have an adverse effect on any social security or income support benefit they may already be in receipt of? Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much for your question. And this is an important one. And obviously, our, our health care workers um, right across the board have done a tremendous um, amount of work throughout this pandemic, and they will do after this pandemic um, in terms of delivering a health care service. Um, I think in terms of the £500 payment, I mean, I am committed to doing all that I can. I think that there is a way of doing it in terms of that it won't be impacted through tax or also a loss of benefits. I'm waiting on a request just formally coming in from the Minister of Health um, in terms of looking at this, but my department and officials have given a commitment that we are waiting and ready once that request has been received. I know that there may be... Um, something or a word that needs to be written into the legislation that the Minister is bringing forward. And indeed, my officials are engaging with officials in health around what that word needs to contain in order to ensure that the issue of the £500 can be paid with no detrimental impact to those receiving it. So the discussions are ongoing. We're just waiting on the formal request coming in. But officials are on standby to do all that we can to ensure that the payment can be made as soon as possible. Alan Chambers, supplementary. For that, uh, Minister, uh, in the absence of some mitigation coming forward, uh, would you agree that a number of the recipients of these acknowledgements could be forced to, to maybe having to refuse a payment, and, and that would be a shame? Thank you. Yeah, I know. Just quickly, I mean, the quicker that we can get health and my officials engaging, the better. Um, and obviously, we have put um, the request out to the Department of Health to be forthcoming with their request officially to my department. I have officials ready and waiting to deal with this, um, and also they need to amend that piece of the legislation under the coronavirus regulations that they're bringing through to ensure that these payments can be made as quickly as possible. So there's a commitment from me. I'm sure there is a commitment from Robin as well that we do this as quickly as possible. Nicole William Humphrey. Minister, you'll be aware that I've written to you in regard to a site on the Ballysillan Road at Sunningdale, which has lay for some time since the masonettes were demolished. There seems to be an impasse between your department and the housing executive. Can I ask you to intervene, as I did in, in writing, to ensure that this site is developed for the benefit of the community and it doesn't become an environmental blight? Yeah, no, just on this, I mean, I'm aware of the correspondence um, from yourself, William, so I'm looking at this at the moment. Discussions are ongoing with the housing executive. Um, and regarding this site as well and just wider sites. Um, and again, I'll come back to you just in writing with an update on where that's going as quickly as possible. Minister, can I, can I just raise the issue in terms of uh, Casement Park? You, you said that you have had significant engagement with the GA and your department that continues to have. Can I ask the Minister, community consultation is hugely important around these issues. What consultation have you as Minister had with local residents, in particular the Mora residents group? Yeah, community engagement and consultation is key. Um, and I know that the GAA are in the middle of developing and just laying out the community engagement plan. I've had no direct engagement yet in terms of the local residents in and around the facility. Obviously, we're, we're awaiting the outcome of the planning decision. Um, we're still waiting on the green certificate to be issued to look at what the terms of that planning are um, in terms of the development of the site, but also the management 
uh, of the site going forward. And I know there may be considerations there in terms of community engagement, not dissimilar to how these facilities are run, for example, in Krogh Park and also in Cork um, as well. Um, I am keen to engage. I mean, I come from a community like Anderson'stown. I have a community development background, and I see the critical importance of engaging uh, with residents, those who are concerned around the stadia, but also those who see um, the positive impact that a stadia can bring to the community. We are um, looking at the community engagement plan at the moment. Obviously, we want to pick up pace in that once the plan and permission certificate has been issued in terms of moving to the full business case. And I will lay out my plans in terms of that engagement going forward, along with what the GAA will be doing as well and what they need to be doing in terms of that grassroots um, community engagement. I call Mike Nesbitt. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I wonder if the Minister could give an indication of how many people are currently benefiting from welfare reform mitigations, such as the so-called bedroom tax uh, and the benefits cap. Um, I don't have the exact numbers in terms of those who are benefiting, but obviously the mitigations are ongoing um, at the moment. They have been running from last year. The mitigations are still being paid. Um, and there is a commitment that they will continue. Obviously, I have draft legislation and regulations um, in terms of closing the loopholes to ensure that I think it's just over 220 families to include that they don't fall through uh, in terms of the loopholes that are there at the moment. I will be bringing that forward then for executive approval soon um, and for those to be introduced um, in the new financial year. The budget obviously is there. I mean, it's been committed to in terms of these mitigations uh, going forward. I can write out to you with the specific numbers of people um, under each of the sections in terms of the bedroom tax um, and also the cap um, and how many households are being impacted um, by that. And then I will do that in writing, sorry, and then update members just once the legislation and regulations are due to come through. And obviously an SR1 form will be going to committee just detailing what those regulations are as well. Given we are about six weeks from the end of the financial year, are you concerned about what happens to these people if you do not bring the legislation through on time to extend the mitigations? No, I suppose it is. Given a commitment, I am committed to going through with these mitigations. The executive is committed through the new decade new approach. There will be no stopping at the end of the financial year the money that is there. The money will continue to run. It is in the budget into the next financial year, and there will be no break in those payments. So I am committed to make sure that those payments are continuing. The issue that we need to fix as soon as possible is the loophole, so families who fall through the existing mitigations, and I am committed they are contained within the regulations. Um, so I am hopefully confident in the time ahead that whilst the legislation will move through, that the regulations, which will be a shorter period of engagement with the committee, can pick up on those issues to ensure that we give protections to those families as soon as possible. Call Nicola Brogan. Um, given the recent attack on the Belfast Multicultural um, Centre and the ongoing issues of exclusion, inequality and racism faced by the BAME community, would the Minister agree that political leaders have a responsibility to show zero tolerance for racism in our society? Yeah, I think um, 100% they do. Um, and I think where racism uh, or sectarianism, for that matter, raises its head, that it needs to be challenged, that there needs to be a united community approach in terms of condemning it. I met with the 
group, um, the Belfast Multicultural Association, just after the fire. I was there on the scene. I know I reported this at the last question time, and I met with them on the Monday after, including the Northwest Migrant Forum and other groups as well. And the big issue they had was saying that you know a tweet up condemning these actions wasn't enough. Um, that we needed to stand side by side. I know that's difficult in the current um, conditions around the regulations of COVID, but that we do need to stand beside uh, these communities, that we need to be showing our support. I give a commitment to do that, and obviously I've written since then um, to the First Ministers, but also to the Justice Minister in terms of specifics around that fire, but also looking at anti-racism work and strategies more broadly. But I do agree we need to face it down where it raises its ugly head and we need to stand with those who are victims uh, of these crimes. Would the Minister join me in condemning the disgraceful and racist comments by DUP MP Gregory Campbell? All political representatives should understand that their words carry weight and can have real-life consequences for those in our society who face racist abuse and attacks. Unfortunately, this is not Mr Campbell's first outburst, but his party should ensure it is his last. I condemn any words being used or any actions um, that can lead to an increase in a feeling of hostility or that can lead to a hate crime itself. I mean, I think when I engaged with members um, of ethnic minority communities after the fair, one of the key things was, I mean, they did say that words are words, but words can hurt and words have consequences. And I do think it is important for any elected member to think about things before we tweet them out or put them up. I mean, people have fallen foul of tweets um, that have been issued uh, in the past. I do think um, that we all, I mean, education and awareness around issues of anti-racism and anti-sectarianism, that we need to be continually learning. We need to be continually engaging with those groups and organisations. I know from after that fair, I mean, there is a genuine fear within these communities. People who even put their head above the power pit to raise concerns after the fair had a fear that they were then going to become a target of hate crimes themselves. And as political and elected members, we have a responsibility to stand with those communities, to de-escalate tensions, and also if there are genuine fears there, and there are, we need to overcome them and challenge racism or sectarianism uh, wherever it appears. And I call Mervyn Story. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the Minister uh, for her continued work of her officials uh, and also her predecessor in relation to assistance that they have given in my North Antrim constituents in relation to the North Antrim Village Forum. It is much appreciated. Minister, yesterday you announced the 50 uh, heritage organisations will receive funding through the Heritage Recovery Fund. Could you confirm as to whether or not the Causeway Coast and Glens Heritage Trust, based in the village of Armoy, uh, will be in receipt of this funding? Thanks very much. Well, I think I mean it's my predecessor, Carl Nicullen, um, in terms of this money being allocated towards the end of last year. Obviously, we're working with the Heritage Lottery, um, and this funding is for organisations to support them in terms of heritage, but also for individuals such as tour guides and all of that as well, to ensure that they are sustained throughout the pandemic um, and that the heritage tr- uh, is protected in the time ahead. Um, I don't have the specifics yet in terms of the applications because they're done by an arm's length body in terms of who's been uh, successful at hand, but I can send that to you in terms of a breakdown. 
um, of the funding that has been allocated. I mean, I think it is critical funding. I can just say, just from some of the announcements yesterday on Twitter, it's a lifeline for both individuals and organisations to ensure that we do protect our heritage, our built environment. They're important, even in terms of local community education, but also in terms of tourism um, and people who come to visit here. Um, you know, they are showcases and they are exceptional. So there is a commitment that we are going to continue to work with those organisations in the time ahead, along with the culture and arts sector, um, the creative industries more broadly, because they do make a contribution um, and they are going to be vital in terms of the recovery piece, the social and economic recovery um, that we are going to be taking forward as an executive. So in terms of the specifics, I can, Mervyn, I can get that sent to you just after this. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the Minister for her uh, answer. And will she ensure, because obviously there is public comment around where some of this money will be allocated, some to very large projects and also to organisations such as the National Trust, but it is vitally important that smaller organisations and rural organisations who make such as Causeway Coast and Glens Heritage Trust an invaluable contribution to that uh, sector and to our communities, that they are not excluded as opposed to larger organisations. Yeah, no, I think that was important across all of the schemes um, that we are supporting, be it um, heritage, culture, arts, um, sports, that it is not just the larger organisations or representative bodies. Um, that we do ensure that those organisations working at the grassroots and often at the coalface uh, receive that support as well and that there is that balance. And importantly, also for individuals as well, which this scheme did pick up in terms of those individuals that are involved in that broader tourism um, or heritage piece. Um, so there is a commitment for me to do that. Obviously, I want to look at more work in terms of um, rural communities as well, not just in terms of heritage, but across the board in terms of the programmes that my department are doing to ensure that we are rural-proofing um, in a real way. And obviously, I want to continue that engagement with the DERA minister also. We have, you know, with DERA and also with the Department of Infrastructure, brought forward additional funds this year to, to support rural communities, and we have worked collaboratively in doing that. Um, and I have written to those two ministers just within the last week, again requesting that we start to do that in a more structured way and to ensure that we are really targeting. I recently met as well with the Rural Community Forum in terms of picking up a variety of issues, not just around heritage, housing, community development and other issues. And I want to continue to engage those as part of that conversation with the other two ministers as well. So again, I can update the member or the House um, as we are moving through that. I call Pat Sheegan, and you won't have time for a supplementary. Sure. and uh, uh, the minister will be aware that the building of New Casement Park is greatly anticipated, both in West Belfast and among the GAA and sporting fraternity. And I know the minister has been a great advocate for it. I wonder, could you tell us when she anticipates uh, approval of the business case and what the next steps are in the whole process? Yeah, no, thanks very much. Well, Casement is a key project to get delivered, as I say, with the other two regional stadia. I played in Casement as a young Camogue, and obviously I want that same experience and opportunity afforded, afforded the other young Gales that are coming up um, across Belfast, but indeed across Ulster um, as well. I have given a commitment that I want to see this project be developed as soon as possible in line with the sub-regional stadia um, as well. 
I have everything up to date that I can do within my department. I'm waiting on the green certificate being issued from the Department of Infrastructure. I have written to the Minister just asking for a timeline of when that's going to be completed. I know discussions are ongoing and I'm hopeful that that will be completed soon. That will allow me then after that to pick up pace to get the full business case finalised. The negotiations around that finalised. Once we have that in place and a timetable, I will then update members as soon as possible. I am keen to have this done as quickly as possible, that we start to get this moving over the next couple of weeks and months, as soon as I can get that green certificate um, from the planner. And time is up. Could members please take a raise for a moment or two? Thank you.